world's biggest crude oil producer, Saudi Aramco, launches the subscription period for its much-anticipated IPO this Sunday as it rolls on with its ambitions to become the globe's preeminent integrated energy and chemicals company. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the Nationals newsroom in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. With me is the Nationals feature editor, Kelsey Warner. Hi, Kelsey. Hello. Before we get into the uh, ins and outs of the Saudi Aramco IPO, uh, it's been fairly oily all week yes. in Abu Dhabi. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Adipec, the big oil and ga- I mean, literally the really big oil and gas exhibition. If not the biggest. It, I, I think it probably is by some parameters mm-hmm. the biggest. There was definitely a lot of energy. There was certainly a lot of people. And like I said, a lot of companies. I mean, Chinese, Russian, American, European, um, all the big names. Um, you know, if you go to the national.ae, you'll see our full coverage, our galleries, our pictures, um, oil services companies as well. Uh, big software companies were there like Microsoft, SAP. Uh, you know, there's various emphasis on, on technology, but it, it made you realize that the, nobody, is, nobody in no company is standing still. And, and and they probably are under so much pressure because of some of the 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 outside forces at work, not just in terms of change demands, but you know the climate change is a risk. Um, you know, some people believe that you should just shut down all the oil companies. Right, and I think the um, CEO of Siemens came out and kind of said. I don't think people understand what a public service the supply of energy actually is. And if we were to do that, uh, you know, Condoleezza Rice also said that um, she finds it insulting when people say that we should just stop producing oil because long haul truckers in the United States are the largest consumer of America's output currently. And so what would that do to supplies? And just, you know, kind of don't be ridiculous. But also I was kind of heartened by the sense of acknowledging that climate change is real was top of the agenda as somebody from the United States where we seem to still be grappling with that as a truth. Um, the fact that Dr. Al Jabbar comes out and says that even, um, and that it's an immediate and real threat, existential threat that must be grappled with. And everyone on that stage yesterday seemed to actually be working on that. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the oil, and, oil and gas industry is such a big um, target, and I don't say this in any way to try and paint them as a victim, but they're out there front and center. And like you said, you know, energy is such a key part of everything um, that you you can't really ignore them. And and so they they will have to kind of bear the brunt of a, a lot of these discussions. Uh, but they're not shying away from it. I think as much as there's been a lot of criticism, I mean, you know, th- there's been a lot of coverage out there, a lot of criticism saying that you know the big companies are kind of ignoring it, but they can't ignore or it, or they ignored it, or they obfuscated results yeah. of um, what climate change was doing, and perhaps hid those. But uh, the sort of the inconvenient truth now we're here, and it seems like that is being confronted in a really. Um, I think fairly transparent way was my takeaway from yesterday. Um, and another big theme that was coming out of Adipec was about Asia, Asian demand. Um, you know that that's a very very important market that will be served. Um, and and certainly the last couple of years, producers in the Middle East have been pivoting towards that. As you mentioned about you know the U.S. production, um, you know the shale revolution, and everything it makes sense. Um, and Europe 
growth has been pretty flat, so it's not a particularly exciting marketplace. But the you know the the companies from Asia that were there, um, and and we had this very interesting development that was kind of flagged um, last week after the Supreme Petroleum Council met in Abu Dhabi, but that they were going to list Murban Futures, the onshore crude grade, and we had a big um, an announcement that uh, the Adnoc would get together with eight of its concession partners. Mm-hmm. Plus, um, ICE, the operator of uh, commodities exchanges, intercontinental exchange, and Vitol, a trader, to uh, partner up to set up this um, Abu Dhabi right. futures exchange at Abu Dhabi Global Market. Right. And it really brought all of the main players to the same table and kind of established Morban as a flagship, exciting potential alternative to Brent. Right. And, wow. they, and they're promising to provide um, liquidity. Uh, to that contract on on the it's a bit of a mouthful the the ice futures Abu Dhabi I you know people think we're going to call it <laughs> IFAD let's see um, ice Abu Dhabi sounds cooler but anyway um, the, the these partners have promised they're from you know Thailand Europe right it's BP, Japan yeah. ENI Total and then right the concessions partners from the Asian countries yes. Right. They'll provide liquidity for this contract, um, they, both physically and, and financially. They will support the exchange. Um, they will they will give it that credibility. Um, and, and, and more importantly, it's serious. When you see all those CEOs and chairmen up on stage saying, we're going to back this, you realize that you know this isn't a sort of throwaway thing of like, oh, that sounds like nice PR. It looks like they really are genuinely committed to to making a futures uh, exchange in Abu Dhabi happen. Yeah. So an, a win for ADGM, a win for Adnoc, and potentially a new benchmark for other buyers. And it, the flexibility now, because pricing was, we've said this before, was retrospective. Sort of you order it and then later on you find out what you pay for it. Now it'll be more transparent, allows it to be more competitive on the Murban crew. Plus Murban is, is more widely uh, bought, if you like, right. but also releases the restrictions on how it could be sold. Um, so that's probably why Vitol's interested, uh, I'm assuming, as a, as a trader to be able to to kind of find you know, market customers for this. Right. But also gives Adnot flexibility instead of it committing all of its Murban to its refinery and waste or to certain customers that expect it, there will now be some flexibility to bring in other crudes for the refinery and, and sell this to the best customer. Right. It's very proud of this type of crude, and now it will be able to go sell it on the spot markets. Well, will we, will we in, a, in the years to come, be saying Murban crude jumped last week or fell last week as, as opposed, opposed to, Brent to Brent or WTI, as we're saying now? Right. Well, I think that's the question mark now and hopefully the ambition of Abu Dhabi that that's what we're going to be saying. And and, and so I think that was a nice development out of, of Adipec that you saw this collaboration and this cohesion. Um, obviously, oil ministers were there. I mentioned the Indian oil minister. You had the Omani oil minister at the event. Um, there was a lot of talk about um, demand, OPEC's outlook, saying that they expected their forecast of you know a million plus barrels a day growth next year to remain, even if trends are changing, as we said, Asian demand will offset any of that. So they're, they're painting a bullish picture, if you like, maybe not stellar growth, but at least enough to keep everybody going. Um, and so it was it, w- it was very much a sort of the gravitational pull of the energy sector, oil and gas was there this week. And I've, that was still ongoing as we speak, actually. My, my favorite highlight was seeing the Welsh pavilion, <laughs> which was next to the UK pavilion, mm-hmm. because, um, you know, with all the Brexit talk, um, it's almost like everyone for themselves 
in Britain. So you had the Welsh representing yeah. and kind of saying, and, and the Scots are there too, but, yeah. but, but to have sort of uh, two, a couple of dozen Welsh companies saying, you know, we're Wales, we're interested in, in, in contributing to, to what the conversation on oil and gas and, you know, we have businesses, we're not just part of UK. Um, I thought was was kind Ooh, of a nice development. Political subtext you were picking up there on the Adepec floor. I'm paraphrasing wow. you that. Were, you Nobody were, was suggesting. You were it. a discerning walk. I was walking the floor, just kind of flabbergasted by the scale and number of pumps I was seeing. But <laughs> the company's heritage dates back to 1933 as an upstream venture founded by predecessors to Chevron and Exxon Mobil. But now, Saudi Aramco undertakes a defining era as its IPO on its domestic exchange kicks off in earnest next week. It will break records, there is no doubt. But in its prospectus for the offering, it also states that initial public offering in the kingdom of this kind and size is unprecedented. But what are the broader implications for Saudi, the region, markets, economic development, and the oil industry? To discuss all of this, and joining us down the line from Hong Kong is Dr. Nasser Saidi, a regular contributor to The National and also the president of the economic advisory and business consultancy, Nasser Saidi and Associates. Uh, Dr. Saidi, perhaps we can take a step back because the, the Aramco IPO has been out there in the news for almost three years now. And, and people have heard about it. And as we build up sort of the, the, the crescendo next week, maybe many people will be wondering why does it really matter? I mean, in the pantheon of developments of Middle Eastern economics and capital markets, I mean, where do you see its significance? Well, this is important because it's part of Saudi's national diversification strategy, which includes privatization. And in many ways, you might want to call this the mother of all privatizations uh, because it brings the Aramco, the national oil company, onto the local exchange, so it's onto Tadawul. It's not on New York, London, Hong Kong, Singapore, or elsewhere. And that sends a strong message that um, you want to grow your, your capital markets. And of course, it will be the biggest listing on, on Tadawul, but it then opens the door for two important things. One is I think it will encourage private companies, and of course, state-owned enterprises in Saudi itself to start listing. So I think it gives an impetus to the development of the, of the capital markets in Saudi. But also, I think on a regional basis, I think it will encourage other GCC countries to start uh, IPOing, uh, privatizing their own natural resources, oil, natural resources. You mentioned that privatization, it might encourage others to do so. But why? I mean, without getting into sort of an economics lecture um, for, for our audience, maybe we can understand why does privatization even matter? I mean, why should we be excited about privatization? How does it help? Well, the reason why privatization is so important is that you need the jobs to be created and the jobs need to be created really by the private sector. So opening up many of these state-owned enterprises means that you're opening up sectors which were monopolized in the past just by the state. It means that you can introduce new technology, you can go into more value-added products, uh, and means you bring in the private sector to participate with their own capital. And remember that all the GCC countries and 
Saudi to begin with, are facing lower oil prices. So their ability to finance economic development, their ability to finance their budgets, social programs, education, health, and all the rest has become much more limited. They've all been running budget deficits. They've had to raise taxes, look at VAT, fees, and others have been rising. Um, now they can take a secondary position and allow the private sector to start investing and creating jobs. That's why this is so important. So so my question, Dr. Saidi, is is now a good time for an energy any energy company to list? I mean, given even in Aramco's prospectus, they acknowledge peak oil demand probably in the next two decades. OPEC has revised its supply downwards. There's multiple factors, extinction rebellion, uh, protesting in Europe. Yes. Uh, What makes this a good time? Yes. Yes, I think it is precisely because of those aspects, because of potentially what we call oil demand peaking at some stage, because shale oil renewables are all competing against fossil fuel energy. That is why you want to de-risk your oil assets. The risks that all the oil producers face, and the biggest of them, of course, is Saudi Arabia, is that they might get stuck with stranded assets. Oil prices might be might fall so much that it is no longer economic even to extract the oil from the ground. Now, the last man standing will be Saudi Arabia because it has low extraction costs. But you don't want to run the risk that the value of your major assets, um, namely oil and gas, could fall so low that you lose a large part of your wealth. So I am an advocate of listing much more. Uh, It's not 5% or 10%. I would go for listing 20 and 30% because you need to de-risk uh, away from the stranded assets that you might be sitting on. So um, the longer you wait, the more difficult I think it becomes because technology is catching up. Uh, we've seen the price of renewables, solar, wind, and other declining by some 90% over the past eight years. And that trend is going to continue. Second, uh, we've become much more energy efficient, so we're using much less energy for consumption and production. And third, people are shifting their tastes. So we now have new movements at the global basis, uh, aware of climate change risks, and everybody is now shifting away from high energy intensity activities, production. And this wave is going to grow. So the earlier the oil countries de-risk and sell off that part of their assets to the rest of the world, the better off we are. Because otherwise, again, you might be losing a large part of your wealth. And if you haven't diversified by that time, what you're looking at in 20, 30, 40 years is potentially a a miserable outlook. And who do you expect from foreign investors to start lining up? Oh, I think foreign investors have already been lined up. The Chinese had already talked about investing a substantial part into any Aramco shareholding. So that could be anywhere between 5 to 10 to $15 billion. I'm in Hong Kong at the moment, and I'm hearing uh, from Chinese entities that sovereign wealth funds, Chinese sovereign wealth funds, and others, the oil companies, uh, would be certainly interested. 
This is interesting and important for Saudi because what you want is a strategic investor. Um, they're on, obviously on the buy side. Today, China is the biggest consumer of Saudi oil, but they're also, they've also gone into joint production. They've also gone into joint ventures in a number of areas, going from refineries to other activities. So China is an ideal, really, strategic partner um, for, for Saudi. And remember that China is at the forefront in terms of renewable energy, particularly solar. So if you think of these two giants from that point of view, they can dominate the energy sector uh, for years to come, both in terms of fossil fuels and in terms of renewables. So that partnership could mean that Saudi itself uh, can start entering uh, in a big way into renewable energy. Uh, it's starting to go into, into solar. Um, they're using it for desalination. And that could develop into a very interesting technological partnership. Um, and again, the impetus really should be how do you de-risk uh, uh, assets that whose price and value could be falling over time? I mean, I can see from a foreign investor's point of view, the the, the sort of lucrative opportunity that Saudi Ramco IPO represents. I mean, the world's largest producer of, of oil equivalent per day, something like over 13 million <coughs> barrels. Um, over 10 of that is crude. And the cheapest. And the cheapest, and that's the right. Cheapest. Their costs are very low. Yes. Uh, the net income was something like $111 billion last year. And they're, right. they're talking about cash dividends for calendar year 2020 of $75 billion. But I would well, that's a minimum. Minimum, that's right? That's a minimum, brother. Which yeah. is lucrative, to say the least. But I would wonder, are foreign investors looking at Tadawal as an exchange and looking at the structure of the exchange, that this would be such a monster IPO that might suck the rest of the oxygen out of the room, and wondering, do we want to be sitting in something that is in, that, in, in an exchange that's relatively small, if I'm, if I'm not being disrespectful? It is. It's nevertheless the biggest Arab stock exchange that, that we have. But... Two, two points I think are important. The first point is that this is more like a bond than it is equity. Uh, remember that you're, you're being promised uh, relatively high dividends. We're going to have to wait and see what the yield will be. It could be anywhere between, say, 3.5% to 6.5%, depending on the final valuation of, of Aramco. But effectively, you're being paid, uh, certainly over the next five years, relatively high dividends. So it's more akin to a bond than it is equity. Second, I think, insofar as Tadao is concerned, they've been opening up the exchange. And um, they have been re-listed um, from being a frontier market to being an emerging market. Um, so they have, from a purely technology point of view, in terms of, say, delivery versus payment, i.e. I get delivery of a security, say in this case a share if I pay. Um, so from a pure technology point of view, the exchange is, uh, I would say, uh, certainly within world class of, of emerging markets. So I don't think there's an issue there. Um, what needs to happen, however, is that um, you have much more frequency and you need to open it up a little bit more to foreign shareholders. Uh, that still needs to happen, but I don't really see any problems in terms of the regulator or in terms of the exchange itself. 
Uh, Kelsey mentioned some of the risks, um, as, as, as stated in the prospectus for the IPO, a very, very big document uh, that we've tried to go through forensically. Um, but there was a couple yes. of interesting risks that they listed that I thought was, was it's kind of an interesting talking point for this region. And one was that the, the government may direct the company to, under, and I'm quoting here, to undertake projects or provide assistance for initiatives outside the company's core business, which may not be consistent with the company's immediate commercial objectives or profit maximization. And then they say separately, the interests of the government, the company's controlling shareholder may differ from the interests of the company or the company's minority shareholders. I mean, to me, you know, having been here a while, I mean, you've been here uh, watching this region longer. It, I mean, that doesn't surprise me at all. But to see it in black and white in the prospectus, perhaps, you know, well, is a bit jarring. Well, um, th- this is very appropriate. I think it's correct to put that sort of disclosure for, for a very simple reason. Let's remember that Aramco has been the major development company uh, for Saudi Arabia. If you want to get something done, a development project, you want to build some infrastructure, you let it be done by Aramco. Uh, Then you're sure that you get delivery of what you wanted. So it's not at all surprising really that uh, government will continue to look to Aramco in terms of the economic development of Saudi Arabia. And remember, it's sitting on the wealth of Saudi Arabia that you want to deploy for economic and social development of Saudi Arabia. So we should not be surprised. At the same time, I think, and to be fair, um, the prospectus and the intention is really to protect minority shareholders. So if they end up, say, opening it up to 3% or even 5%, um, there are investor protection clauses uh, in there. So for a foreign investor, uh, they will have the comfort of having a board where they will be represented And um, there's also sufficient protection of minority shareholders and the promise of relatively high dividends. So I think from that point of view, I don't think it is problematic. I think it's stating uh, a reality and people should be comfortable. And remember that this is no different from going into uh, other state-owned enterprises globally uh, where there are such provisions where at the end of the day, it is a state-owned entity and investors go in fully cognizant of what their rights are, but also what the rights of a sovereign are. And I don't think, I don't think uh, institutional investors would worry about that. Dr. Said, I think it's interesting what you were saying earlier, drawing a pretty clear line between China lining up to be an investor, therefore, you know, guaranteeing some long-term demand, but also creating a bit of a stepping stone for Aramco in its energy transformation. I think this also connects mm-hmm. to the sort of conflict of interest that it named in its prospectus. Um, can you speak a little bit more to what other proceeds might we expect from the IPO? If they're now looking to solar and wind, what else might these receipts allow them to do? The big advantage of China is that um, China is willing to share its technology. And what the rest of the world may not know is that China today is at the forefront of artificial intelligence, of AI. They're at the forefront of solar and its applications, the whole slew of of activities. Um, If you look at uh, electric buses, uh, they have fleets of them. And 
they are moving to a vast energy transformation of all their activities. So for a Saudi Arabia that also wants to change its energy mix and also bring in new technology, uh, China is by far uh, the best partner. Other countries, of course, do have technology. The U.S. is there. But you have to deal with a large number of companies. Whereas with China, you can direct, you can get direction from the Chinese leadership to say, Saudi Arabia is our strategic partner. We will support it. It is in our own China's interest. And Saudi will turn around and say, yes, and it is in our interest to have a China and its technology uh, participating in our economic transformation. You anticipated my question on the U.S. <laughs> I was about to say, okay, because where does that leave the United States' interests if Saudi's increasingly turning to China across kind of well, all metrics? Yeah. Look, I mean, if, if you look at the recent numbers, um, U.S., for the first time since 1978, has now had a surplus in terms of petroleum. It was always been running a deficit. Uh, just in the past two months, it's now running a surplus. Yeah, And this is momentous. What it's saying is that U.S. is increasingly independent from an energy point of view because of, of, of shale oil and gas. It is much less dependent on Middle Eastern oil, including on Saudi oil. That is a warning, I think, to all the GCC countries that in the past, the U.S. was a major consumer, so was Europe. It is now no longer your main consumer. The economic geography of oil, the oil market and its dynamics have shifted um, tremendously in the past 15 years. So the outlook is much more dominated now by emerging markets and particularly by Asia. And that means that the United States will disengage and it is starting has started to disengage from our region of the world. The sooner we understand that, and the sooner we understand that they're no longer dependent on our oil and gas and energy, uh, the better for us. And that means the challenge, I think, for us is to start designing uh, a new energy outlook for us. Uh, historically, all the trading agreements that we've had have been with Europe and the United States. Now we need to think of new trade and investment agreements with Asian countries and with African countries. Uh, they're next door to us. Uh, it would give us uh, strategic leverage because we've got the energy that they need and they've got the populations uh, that we need to sell our products. Dr. Nasser Saidi, thanks so much for joining us and I'm sure you'll be keeping close tabs on how the Saudi Aramco IPO plays out. It's a fascinating story. I think we should we should all look for, and to me, really, uh, it's a no-brainer from an investor's point of view, because of all the reasons that we mentioned. Saudi will do whatever it takes uh, to make that IPO successful. Thank you, Dr. Saidi. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, well, stay tuned to yeah. the Business Extra podcast over the next few weeks. We'll 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 be keeping on top of this story. Um, Kelsey Warner, the Nationals Future Editor, thanks for being with us again. Good to be here. Before we finish, here are the other stories you need to know about on the national.ae. The cumulative value of foreign direct investment in the UAE climbed to 513.8 billion dirhams at the end of last year, as the economy continues to implement reforms and attract capital despite global economic headwinds. 
Imar Properties said third quarter net profit surged 20% as the developer plans a new 25 billion dirham project on the Dubai Al Ain Road. And Steve Madden, founder and design chief of the namesake US shoe empire, says his brand has only halfway penetrated the Middle East as he sees opportunity for more growth in the region. That's it for today. If you've enjoyed this show, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and do leave a kind review by all means. All that remains is to thank our production team, Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan. Thank you all for listening. Join us again next time.